join us for the TVO Telethon, March 23rd and 24th, and donate early for a chance at great prizes. Visit telethon.tvo.org for more information. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. We're still trying to pick up the pieces from that Groundhog Day election to see what it all meant. One thing it has surely meant is the end of Annamie Paul's time as Green Leader. She resigned on Monday. We'll have some more analysis just ahead, including what the people think the other leader's next step should be. But now that this grand national consultation with the people is behind us, we're now going to be more resolutely focused on the provincial calendar as the parties at Queen's Park count down to next June's Ontario election. It's Tuesday, September 28th, 2021, so let's get to it. JMM, we've got some immediate post-election polling that we want to share from our friend John Wright at Maru Public Opinion. How divided or united do you think Canada is these days? Apparently, 77% believe Canada is more divided now than before the election was called, and 52% believe the democratic process is broken and needs a major overhaul. That sounds, John Michael, rather ominous, but I don't know, maybe it's not quite as bad as it sounds. What do you think? Uh you know, a bit of historical context. Uh, there have literally been times in Canada's history where bombs were going off in the streets uh, because of um, domestic terrorist threats. Um, and, you know, things are bad now, but I, I don't think they're quite as bad as they have been in the past. Um, the Globe and Mail's John Ibbotson had a column last week that, you know, looked at a lot of these uh, same conditions, the same sort of political context. And, you know, he made the argument that, uh, you know, in fact, there's really a lot of similarity between Canada's major political parties. Um, all four of the, the major parties uh, say that they want a price on carbon. Uh, all four, uh, you know, uh, uh, oppose major legal restrictions on abortion. Uh, all opposed uh, the, uh, you know, broad legalization of assault weapons, at least by the end of the election campaign. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. this, there's a lot of agreement uh, because, you know, for lack of a better uh, explanation, you know, everybody's still chasing the same pot of voters and Canadians actually have some pretty strong opinions on this stuff. Um, you know, as, as much as the, uh, the election is always going to highlight the divisions and the disagreements, uh, there is also a lot of consensus in Canadian politics and, and we shouldn't forget that. Right. And presumably, if half of us think the democratic process is broken and needs an overhaul, that suggests half of us don't feel that way and are content with what transpired two Mondays ago. It's interesting. Our, our system, of course, does not allow you to vote for minority government per se. And yet somehow we've managed to do just that in five of the last seven federal elections, eh? Right. And, you know, no party got more than about a third of the votes, uh, you know, either Canadians uh, just do not want any one party uh, running the show for very long in Ottawa, uh, or, you know, I guess another way of saying it is that uh, no political party has managed to convince voters that they are worth handing uh, the, the keys to the whole city. Uh, so, you know, for now, we are going to have a minority government going forward. Uh, and, you know, the Liberals will have to spend another while uh, navigating the, the more difficult politics of uh, a minority parliament. Indeed. OK, back to Maru Public Opinion. They asked, what should the leaders do now? 
and 55% of those surveyed say Justin Trudeau should resign and let a new leader take over, 55%. However, 45% say he should stay and lead the Liberals into the next election whenever that is. For the Conservatives, the numbers are much closer. 51% say Aaron O'Toole should resign now. 49% say he should stay on, 51-49, pretty close. For the NDP, Jagmeet Singh is in the strongest position of them all. 69%, that's almost 7 in 10 people surveyed, say the NDP leader should stay on. Only 31% say he ought to quit. And even though Annemi Paul's Green Party only won two seats and the leader herself did not win one of them, only 55% say she should quit. 45% said she should stay on. Same, same numbers basically as Trudeau. Despite those numbers, however, Ms. Paul has come to the conclusion on her own that without a seat, she cannot continue as leader, and she in fact did step down from her post on Monday. That was a, an extraordinary uh, farewell statement she gave, and I, I guess I'll give people a bit of a spoiler that uh, Ms. Paul made my quote of the week. Um, but you know, I think we're seeing the uh, the expectations game uh, at work here. Uh, People did not expect the NDP to form government, so Jagmeet Singh is not being judged by that standard. Uh, he did slightly increase their seat count. Uh, he did increase their uh, share of the popular vote. Um, so, you know, that is that is a, a kind of success. It's, it's the kind of success that Jack Layton had in elections before 2011. So, you know, it's it, it's... It's fine, right? <laughs> um, you know, there were higher expectations for uh, both Justin Trudeau and Aaron O'Toole, and uh, those expectations were not met. Uh, Justin Trudeau had hoped to form a majority. He didn't get one. Uh, Aaron O'Toole had hoped to at least form government. Uh, he will not do that. So, uh, you know, you can understand why they are being held to a higher standard because it's the standard they held themselves to. It also does show you how unfair politics can be, even in the NDP. This was Mr. Singh's second election as the NDP leader. He won 24 seats the first time, and he won 25 seats a second time. 25 million bucks for one more seat. And by all accounts, he's going to get a third opportunity to lead his party into the next election, whenever that is. Now, just think back to a few elections ago. Tom Mulcair won 44 seats for the NDP, and what happened to him? They kicked him to the curb right away. He did not get a second chance. So not all is fair in love and politics. Now, how's this for some more interesting numbers? And let's give our uh, tip of the cap right now to Mike Moffat, the professor at the Ivy Business School in London, who crunched these numbers. Mike said, if you take the top 20% of Canadian ridings by population density, you've got the 68 so-called most urbanized ridings in Canada. Got it? The 68 most densely populated ridings in the country. And here's the question. Who won those 68 ridings? Well, the answer is the Liberals won 56 out of 68. The NDP won 9 of the 68. The Bloc Québécois got 2 of the 68. And the Greens got 1. That was in Kitchener Centre. The Conservatives? They won 0. Zero of the 68 most populated ridings in the country. Now, the Waterloo-based journalist Jeffrey Stevens, whom uh, many of you may read his weekly columns that are just excellent, he opened his telescope just a little bit wider, and he looked at all 115 constituencies in the so-called MTV, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver. And he discovered the Conservatives won eight out of 115. Only eight 
out of 115 ridings in Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver. JMM, even if you are the most popular party in the country, as the Conservatives have been for two straight elections, right? They've won the most votes twice in a row. But you cannot win an election if you are not a viable option in urban Canada. You just can't. Uh, I am, of course, reminded of the... um the Dire Straits song, uh, you know, I want my MTV uh, here in Canada, in Canadian politics, uh, MTV, uh, Montreal, Toronto and Vancouver, everybody wants MTV. Um, and if you want to know how the Liberals keep winning elections, uh, as you say, I mean, not getting the largest share of the vote, uh, two elections in a row now, uh, only got 32 percent of the, the vote this time. Uh the way they keep winning is they continue to win in urban Canada and most especially uh, in MTV land uh, until the conservatives figure out how to to penetrate uh, these urban fortresses. You know, they can take all of the joy they want in winning seats in the West and in rural areas by, you know, lopsided 30, 40,000 vote margins. But that doesn't get you any closer to winning the country or forming government. That is exactly right. I, I, I do admire that analysis. And even more, I admire the Dire Straits reference. That is fantastic, especially since <laughs> I, like, I don't know this, but I'm betting you weren't alive when that song came out. Uh, I was four, actually, when it came out. Ah. Uh, Wikipedia tells me it's from the Brothers in Arms album, uh, which, like everyone else in my generation, I know primarily from the time West Wing used it in the show's second season finale. <laughs> Ah, The West Wing, best political show for my money ever. And I don't say that because Aaron Sorkin, the producer, and I share the same birthday. It's beyond that. That was a truly (laughs) wonderful show. Now, okay, enough cultural references for this moment. Turning to Queen's Park, since we are, after all, the On Poly podcast, the government announced the public accounts for the 2020-2021 fiscal year. They announced it last week. It's basically the final word on how much money the government spent and where it spent it. The headlines are relatively good for the Ford government. The deficit for last year was $16.4 billion. That's much lower than the projections the government was relying on even only just a few months ago. Government revenues are up. Spending was lower than projected. JMM, I imagine you're going to tell our listeners that these things are just a bit more complicated than all of that suggests. Am I right? Well, you know, that's our job here, right? Um, Let's start with the basics. Uh, The government's deficit, of course, is the difference between its revenue and its expenditures, and uh, both turned out to be different from what the government had been planning around. Uh, The government spent less than it had planned for in fiscal year 2020 because, uh, according to the technical briefing we were given, uh, a bunch of money that was budgeted for Ontario's third wave uh, didn't get spent in the 2020 fiscal year. Why? Because the third wave itself didn't peak until after April 1st and the start of the new fiscal year. (laughs) I tell you, Steve, politicians do not run the world. Accountants do. (laughs) Yes, they do. But now let's just be clear. Those expenditures and the need for them, that didn't disappear, obviously. They just happened to be moved into the next fiscal year post-April 1st, the fiscal year we're currently in. Is that right? That's exactly right. And the government's first quarter finances uh, already reflect some of that. And we'll get an even better view of how this year's finances are changing uh, when the government presents a fall economic statement uh, that is uh, expected in October or November. All right. That's one side of the balance sheet. That's the expenses. What about the revenues, the money coming in? This one is really surprising because something we really didn't know was possible happened last year. The province's revenues actually increased in a recession. That has never happened before. 
Well, hang on, hang on, hang on. Because I kind of read this stuff too, there is a giant-sized asterisk that we have to have here. Because we <laughs> yes. did, of course, have one of the most you know severe recessions ever. And yet the province made more money during a terrible recession than it did the previous year in 2019 before the recession kicked in. That's what you're telling us. But maybe now you should talk about the, you know, massive asterisk that comes attached to this. Yes, a, a huge caveat. Um, the the increased revenues for the province are almost entirely thanks to the federal government. Uh, basically, the enormous federal supports to people and businesses last year uh, that saw personal and corporate income taxes grow. Uh, and the federal government's direct transfers to Ontario were also uh, unprecedented. And for our purposes, that's also counted as provincial revenue. There were some areas where provincial revenues were still down. Uh, gas taxes went down because people didn't drive as much. Uh, all of the casinos were closed, and so gambling revenues uh, were down a bunch. These things are not surprising. Uh, but yeah, overall, uh, provincial revenue was up, again, uh, thanks to the uh, largesse of Ottawa. Um, but it's just one final in a way that 2020 was just a really, really weird year. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? All right, let's move on to another matter. By this time next week, the legislature will have returned to sit after it had been prorogued by the government earlier this month. But the fireworks might start even before MPPs actually get back into the chamber, since the speaker, Ted Arnott, issued a new directive for people who want to enter the legislature. JMM, fill us in on that. Uh, the Speaker has said that as of 6 a.m. on October 4th, uh, anyone who wants to enter the legislature must show proof of vaccination or a recent COVID rapid test result. Uh, that includes MPPs and political staff. Um, for the vast majority of MPPs, of course, this won't matter, uh, as the big four parties at Queen's Park are now comprised uh, entirely of vaccinated MPPs. If there are any problems with this, it is going to come from some of the independents. And I'm thinking in particular here of uh, MPP Randy Hillier. Uh, he has already said this speaker's decision is unlawful. Uh, and I will note for our listeners that uh, Hillier was cited repeatedly in the spring sitting of the legislature for breaching the masking rules that were in place. So um, he does not like this ruling. Uh, he has already shown a willingness to uh, uh, breach previous rules. He hasn't shown a ton of deference to speaker's rulings. So um, it's entirely possible that uh, we will see some kind of um, acrimony or showdown between uh, MPP Hillier and the speaker. Well, let's see if we can get to the bottom of this. Mr. Hillier says the order is unlawful. Is he correct in saying that? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked, because this gives me yet another opportunity to discuss uh, one of my favorite topics, parliamentary privilege. Oh, uh, joy! <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about privilege on the podcast before, uh, but the, the short version is that the normal laws don't apply to the building of the legislature itself. Uh, one well-known example is that words that are spoken in the chamber are not subject to libel or defamation laws. Uh, parliamentary privilege is embedded in the Constitution. It's there to protect MPPs as they do their jobs. And it applies both to individual members uh, as well as the legislature collectively. So what we have here is a conflict between two privileges. You know, on the one hand, in normal times, 
MPPs cannot be impeded as they move around the legislature. Uh, that is part of their privilege. Uh, I, I've watched uh, Queen's Park security get in trouble sometimes uh, just by incidentally uh, interfering with MPPs because they're trying to do crowd control. It's, it's, they take it very, very seriously. Uh, so in normal times, uh, Arnott's order would clearly be uh, not just unlawful, but unconstitutional. Um, you may have noticed these are not normal times. And so we have the speaker in his role as the guardian of the house, trying to create uh, as safe a working environment for MPPs and staff as he can. And the legislature uh, has a collective right to run its own affairs. And that is also a privilege. And Arnott's decisions aren't necessarily subject to things like a judicial review or a charter appeal. Uh, You know, a judge can't necessarily overrule them. So the speaker is kind of like the king of the legislature, in which case, if it comes down to a fight, who are you putting your money on? Well, I mean, if push comes to shove here, and, you know, I guess we should say I hope that doesn't become a literal uh, phrase. Um, If the majority of MPPs back up the speaker in this decision, they can choose to exclude unvaccinated MPPs from the legislature. And there is even, you know, you could call it the nuclear option here. Uh, There is the, the the possibility, at least, uh, for them to expel MPPs entirely. You would essentially be firing them and declaring that their seats were vacant. Uh, in, in If there were more than a year between elections, you, or before an election, rather, uh, you would then hold a by-election to replace them. It would just be, you know, they would just not be MPPs anymore. Um, that's unlikely. Uh, it has only ever happened once in Ontario's history, uh, and only, I think, three or four times federally. Uh, but I am mentioning it here just to give our listeners a sense of how broad the legislature's powers are. Hmm. In which case, let me remind all of those listening right now, if you want to get something for John Michael for Christmas, I'm giving you the heads up. Anything to do with parliamentary privilege, (laughs) any books on that subject, I'm sure he would be in your debt forever. Oi. (laughs) Okay. That was actually well done. I'm teasing the heck out of you right now, but that was very well done. And I understand that so much better now. So let's hear it for parliamentary privilege and your brilliant way in which you uh, enunciate all the responsibilities and rights that partake thereof. And I will not be getting you a book on it for Christmas. Don't you worry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have that immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can let us know what you liked, what you didn't, and help make this little podcast a little bit better. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. Here now, my quote of the week, and we're going to go back to last week for this. Premier Doug Ford introduces vaccine passports for Ontario if people want to enter non-essential establishments such as gyms or restaurants. Here's the Premier. I know that many people are concerned about this certificate and what it means for your civil liberties. I know that this is a divisive issue, and that's understandable. I want you to know that I hear you. Our government understands your concerns. And it's no secret that I was reluctant to use this tool. But our highest concern, what keeps me up at night, is ensuring we never lose our hard-fought progress. Doug Ford on why vaccine passports are now coming to Ontario. And my quote of the week, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is from the now former leader of the Green Party of Canada, Annamie Paul. Uh, and she described what it has been like to lead a party that has not exactly made her welcome as leader. Uh, What people need to to realize is that uh, when I was elected uh, and put in this role, I was um, breaking a glass ceiling. 
Um, what I didn't realize at the time is that I was breaking a glass ceiling that was going to fall on my head and leave a lot of shards of glass that I was going to have to crawl over, um, you know, throughout my time as a leader. And when I arrived at that debate stage, I had crawled over that glass. I was spitting up blood, but I was determined to be there. I was determined to be there so that the next time someone like me thinks of running and wonders whether it's possible to be on that stage, uh, they will know that it is possible uh, to do that. That's Annamie Paul, the former leader of the Green Party of Canada, mincing no words on her way out the door. Her place in history is secure, however. She is still and will remain the first ever black, female, Jewish major party leader in Canadian history. So there. And that is this week's episode of the On Poly podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, let's stay positive and test negative. Stay safe, Steve. <laughs>